Our guest today on Washed Up Journalists is Charles Kelly, who was a longtime general assignment reporter and columnist for the Arizona Republic. Kelly was born and raised in the Midwest, attending a one-room school during his formative years. After college, he served from 1968 to 1970 as a military policeman for the 30th Military Police Battalion, Presidio of San Francisco where, among his duties, he guarded school kids threatened by the notorious Zodiac Killer. After his stint as an MP, Kelly completed a master's degree in journalism at Northwestern University. After getting his start as a night police reporter and copy editor in Omaha, Kelly packed his belongings into a Ford Fairlane and drove to Phoenix in the spring of 1972, where he'd ultimately work for 36 years at the Republic. In 1976, Kelly was thrown into the struggle to solve one of Arizona's most high-profile crimes when he and three other reporters covered the murder of Republic reporter Don Bowles, whose car exploded with him in it. In 1992, Kelly and fellow reporter Randy Collier were awarded the Arizona Press Club's Verge Hill Award, the state's highest journalism award, for stories they covered in 1991 including the revelation of what happened to a missing longtime Arizona lobbyist and aide to Dwight D. Eisenhower, and a description of how Phoenix area mortuaries were deceiving customers by mixing cremated ashes of animals with human ashes. Kelly retired from the Republic in 2008 and focused his attention on writing books. His works of fiction include Pay Here and Grace Humiston and the Vanishing, which was a finalist for the Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award in 2012. His biography, Gunshots in Another Room, The Forgotten Life of Dan J. Marlowe, was optioned for a TV movie in 2018. Welcome, Charles Kelly. Thank you for being with us here today. I'm not going to get too deep into the weeds with, uh, and bury the lead, but I, I, I want to get right to the Don Bowles murder because that's clearly... Um, when you listen to your bio, that's the thing that jumps out. So let's jump right in and, and talk about your work covering the murder of Don Bowles. It all started on the morning of June 2nd, 1976. You were just 30 years old at the time. Take us there. I have returned to the newsroom that morning after covering a routine uh, Phoenix City court case. I was going to have uh, lunch with a former uh, a Republic reporter who at that time was uh, actually working for CBS radio. When I got to the newsroom, everyone seemed shocked, and they very soon told me that a reporter's car had been blown up. At that point, everyone thought the reporter was Al Sitter, who was our land, uh, land fraud expert, because he covered a lot of dangerous stories, and he'd been threatened many times. Uh, but then someone called in and said there was a press sticker on the car for the Arizona press uh, room at the at the state capitol. At that point, we knew the victim was Don Bowles, who was our mafia expert. And then, in short order, you and three other reporters were, were assigned to to cover the story. Um, I believe I read where, where Bowles lived for a little over 10 days. Is that correct? He did. Uh, he died 11 days after the bombing. Uh, and... Uh, 
the efforts to save his life were pretty extreme. Uh, they had to amputate uh, both legs and one arm uh, before he, he ultimately passed away. What instructions were you given um, either from assignment editors or even as high as, for instance, the publisher at the Arizona Republic? What instructions were you given in the wake of, of Bowles's murder in terms of you know, reconciling your own personal safety with good reporting? The city editor uh, said that whenever we went out on an interview, uh, we had to have two reporters go rather than just one, so one could cover the other one's back. Sometimes we actually did interviews with a third reporter surveilling the interview to make sure nothing uh, bad was going down. On one occasion, one of the other reporters invited a mafia source to his house, and he was worried about that, so... He had me sit in the back room with a thirty caliber carbine just in case things went wrong. In the end, the mafia guy didn't even show up, so it was a bit of false drama there. That's that's not something they cover at uh, the hundred level journalism courses you take in college. That's for sure. No, they should put in a course on firing thirty uh, caliber carbines. It would be very helpful. <laughs> uh, what are your memories of of Don Bowles, the man? Um, I believe that. Uh, at one point, you wrote years after his death, you wrote a column uh, explaining the relationship you had. While you were not close, I, I believe you wrote that you had had lunch with him a few times and, and covered some of the same stories, and he had kind of helped you along. Can you speak to that? Yeah, that's uh, that was basically what happened. Because Bowles worked out of the Capitol press room and I worked out of the newsroom, we rarely saw each other. On, a, on one occasion, we had lunch together. Another occasion, we worked uh, nights and we had dinner. But the, the most time I spent with Don, especially on a professional level, was when I was doing a story on the felons that had been licensed as real estate salesmen uh, by our uh, corrupt real estate commissioner. And I went out to the Capitol and Don sat with me for a couple of hours going through his files on uh, real estate fraud. And that was very helpful because he was highly organized and had a great memory. So that really uh, improved that story a lot. I read somewhere that in the wake of his uh, in, the, in the wake of his murder, the Republic and the Phoenix Gazette offered a twenty five thousand dollar reward for any information that ultimately would lead to a resolution. Do you recall where that money came from? Was that just from the newspaper's coffers, or how that came about? The newspaper put up the original $25,000, uh, then contributions came in, and eventually that amount went up to $33,000 before it was actually handed out to a number of witnesses that helped with the early prosecutions. Uh, there were a number of prosecutions over the years in the case, but early on uh, there were three convictions or three people convicted uh, John Harvey Adamson, who was a street punk who placed the bomb on the car. Uh, Jimmy Robeson, who was a, a mobbed-up plumber who, Adamson said, triggered the bomb. And Max Dunlap, who uh, hired them to kill Bowles uh, because, according to Adamson, Bowles' stories had upset uh, Dunlap's mentor, who was a rancher and liquor wholesaler named Kemper Marley Sr., it's funny, Arizona in those days strikes me a lot like the uh, the wild, wild west. I mean, explain 
for our listeners, kind of the the gun friendly culture in the community and apparently in the newsroom. Yes, uh, it was a, a bit of a shock to me uh, coming into the newsroom how uh, free and easy people were about firearms. You know, you know I, I was trained with firearms in the military, so it was nothing particularly new to me. But uh, the managing editor would like to call people into his office and show them his latest handgun. Uh, he showed me a, a very nice uh, three fifty seven Magnum Colt, Colt Python on one occasion. Uh, we also uh, had a, a reporter who uh, got a, into a little kerfuffle out in the suburbs with the local police, and he got drunk, fired a few shots at them, but nobody got hit, so he was not fired, didn't lose his job. Uh, and we also had an outdoor writer who thought the best way to deal with hijackings was to just hand each passenger a handgun as they got on board the airliner. So nobody took that very seriously, though. <laughs> That's a no- novel idea. Well, uh, I guess all's well that ends well. Um, and I take it on at least one occasion, you you found yourself, you armed yourself, correct? Uh, I did. I'm early on in the Bulls investigation. Uh, I hollowed out a dictionary and put an old uh, 380 caliber Colt pistol inside there just in case I needed it. I, I never had to pull it out, but, uh, you know, it, it was there in case uh, things went wrong. So I want to I want to circle back to the topic of land fraud, which sounds like it was rampant in Arizona in the 1960s and 70s. Can you explain why that was and who were some of the key players in, in some of those situations? Yeah, land fraud was uh, a widespread crime in the state at the time. Uh, it was because it was a difficult crime to investigate, and it was complex. Uh, that you know that made law enforcement efforts efforts more difficult. Plus, uh, there was a great demand for land at the time, and we had a character named Ned Warren Senior who was the uh, considered the land fraud king of Arizona. He ran many shell corporations, earned a lot of money out of uh, land fraud, and was behind the murder of his accountant, Ed Lazar, who was shot to death in an underground garage in Phoenix. About a, uh, it, was, it was about a year before Bowles was bombed. Uh, speaking of Bowles, I want to put one more point on the Bowles story. Um, I believe you've told me or somebody's told me previously about your career that a story with your byline is actually on display at the museum in Washington, or I believe it's still in Washington. I think it's scheduled to, it was recently sold and it's going to move within a year. But is that, is that accurate? You have a byline story yes. on display at the museum? Yes. I believe that that's the story of uh, Bull's death when he died in the hospital. And that was displayed along with, Along with his car, the the car that was blown up was on display there, and I guess still is on display at the museum. As you say, they're in transition now, but uh, the car is there. You can, uh, if it's still, uh, if the museum still has it up, uh, everyone can see what damage was done to that car, and obviously how how awful it was for the person that was inside. Do you recall? Did the Republic? 
ever publish any photos of the mangled car or or did they choose not to to not uh, you know shock their readers no we published pictures of the car uh a number of pictures actually there was actually strangely enough the the bombing took place in the parking lot of the hotel clarendon in midtown phoenix and the people who owned the hotel for a while actually had pictures related to the bombing in one of the hallways there and also a statue of bowls. So so those things were actually on display for people who went to the hotel. So let's, let's shift a little bit and, and actually back up and discuss your time uh, in San Francisco as, as an MP um, and explain what exactly you were doing with regards to the Zodiac Killer, what, what your role was in, in that whole investigation. Uh, I was doing somewhat less than Clint Eastwood did with the Zodiac character in Dirty Harry. Uh, I, I was just, what had happened, if you remember that movie, you remember that that Zodiac-like character wrote to the police and the newspapers threatening to hijack uh, a school bus full of kids and to shoot them as they jumped off. So because we had school buses on the Presidio, a number of uh, military policemen including me, were assigned to follow school buses around and wait for Zodiac to uh, jump out of the bushes and do his worst. But uh, he never did. He never did attack a school bus. Did did that event in any way uh, help sharpen your skills as a reporter? Even though you weren't operating at that time as a journalist, I, there's still some kind of reporting style skills involved in that. Did that really make you a better reporter ultimately? Police work is like reporting in a lots of ways. A lot of people don't realize how much writing police officers do. They do an incredible amount of writing. Uh, and so gathering information on the scene, writing it up concisely and accurately, that's, that actually did help uh, uh, when I became a journalist. So you got your start in 1971 at the Omaha World Herald. Uh, I believe that job lasted just nine months. You weren't even there a year. Um, but go back to that time. How did that that job prepare you for life at the Republic? Well, it was my first expo- exposure to journalism and to the sometimes odd characters uh, that worked for newspapers, including there was a copy editor named Vern Pizer, who was kind of a rabbit-like little guy. He was uh, drinking very heavily at the time. But uh, even though he had only gone to the eighth grade, he was an excellent reporter and editor. And But he had his quirks. Uh, later, after I went to the Arizona Republic, uh, Pizer was hired as suburban editor. And at one point, uh, he hired a waitress to be a reporter, but she couldn't report or write, so he had to write all her stories for her. And he even submitted her... Uh, for a Pulitzer Prize because she suffered from bulimia and he wrote a first-person story about that and sent it in uh, for, uh, submitted it as uh, a possibility for a Pulitzer Prize. How did you first get hired at the Republic? Do you recall what that process was like? Yeah, I had gone to school at Northwestern, as you mentioned, and one of my classmates there, actually a guy I roomed with in Washington, D.C., in the Washington reporting program, had taken a job at a Tucson newspaper. He told me that he had heard there were openings at the Arizona Republic. 
I called up the city editor. I sent him some clips. We talked on the phone, and we just did a phone interview. And uh, after that, uh, things worked out. Do, do you recall like the, the sort of questions he asked you on, in the phone interview? I mean, that seems like, uh, especially in those days, to take a job sight unseen. Do you recall how clear a picture of Phoenix he painted for you or, or how he determined your skill set over the phone? He didn't really uh, describe what Phoenix was like, but I had a pretty good idea. But uh, Bob was a, a fascinating guy. He was an excellent editor, but again, quirky. And he only asked me two major questions. He asked me if I was good at mathematics and if I was a good writer. And I said that, yes, I was a good writer, and no, I was bad at mathematics. And he hired me on the spot, and I drove to Phoenix. What what was your can you recall what your starting pay at the Republic was in those days? Yeah, my starting pay at the Republic was $185 a week and that my pay at the World Herald the starting pay had been $150 a week. So uh, to me that was an enormous boost in pay and I not long after that I got on the phone with one of my uh, Northwestern uh, classmates George R R Martin who was working for sort of a uh, domestic Peace Corps operation in Chicago at the time. And I said, George, you know, the pay here is great, man. You've got to apply for a reporting job down here. He said, no, you know, I'm, I'm still writing uh, science fiction part-time. I'm kind of enjoying myself. I think I'll keep doing this. And I thought, well, okay, if that's what you want to do. Hang on there a second. Is that the George R.R. R. Martin who wrote Game of Thrones? It is. <laughs> he wow. did pretty well later. <laughs> yeah, I'd say he ultimately made the right decision. <laughs> so after the Don Bowles situation cooled off, um, as part of your duties at the Republic, you started looking for missing heirs. And this is a really fascinating part of your reporting experience, and I want to have you touch on it. I explain to our listeners what exactly that was all about. Well, I always enjoyed looking for people who weren't easy to find. That's always part of reporting, you know, something that happens when you're trying to get interviews. And during slow times at the paper, I got it into my head that it would be fun to find missing heirs and to write about their stories. So I went to the local Maricopa County Public Fiduciary's office that the fiduciary is an office that takes care of the affairs that people who don't have friends or family to take care of their affairs. So I asked them for cases that, where they were looking for heirs and couldn't find them. And I took up a couple of places, uh, a couple of cases in which they were stumped and I found the heirs. And then later uh, I, uh, I helped out a bank who was looking for a missing heir and, uh, the, the heir involved was a relative of uh, the novelist Marjorie Kennan Rawlings, who wrote the novel The Yearling. And the bank had had a private eye looking for the heir for a year and hadn't been able to find him. It took me three days to find him. He was living in Portland, Oregon. He was homeless part of the time, which had made him a little more difficult to find, but not that difficult. We're going to break here momentarily to tell you that today's episode of the Washed Up Journalist podcast is brought to you by Legacy Preservation. Since 2006, Legacy Preservation has been working with successful people across the country to capture their stories for posterity. That's right, across the country. Whether you live in New York, 
L.A. or Phoenix like today's guest, Charles Kelly. Legacy can interview, research, write, edit, design, and print your family or business book. It's one-stop shopping for all your private publishing needs. Legacy Preservation. We write history, yours. Special thanks to Charles Kelly for being with us today. Also, thanks to Kevin McLeod for providing our soundtrack. Now, back to our conversation with Charles Kelly. Tell me a little bit about uh, Duke Tully, who what, at the time, at least in your early years of the Republic, Duke was the, the publisher. What was his story? Duke Tully was an excellent newspaper executive, but his real claim to fame was that he was in the Air Force Reserve, an officer in the Air Force Reserve, and that he had been a combat pilot in Vietnam and Korea, and he loved to tell stories about war action and so on. And, you know, things were going along fine until about 1985. Uh, at that point, uh, Tully was embarrassed because the the Pulitzer Prize story that Pizer had written for the waitress, uh, of course, didn't win the Pulitzer, but for some reason, someone got it there into their heads that it had, and Tully announced it, and he was embarrassed. And then things went from bad to worse because the county attorney dug into uh, Tully's background and found out that he had faked his whole military career after all these years. Uh, and I spent New Year's Day 1986 in Wichita, Kansas, where a bunch of uh, reporters were working on a story about his background, and my assignment was to try to find out if he had murdered his first wife, who had uh, died with a gunshot wound in the head. Uh, she hadn't. She had committed suicide, but uh, you know it was it was certainly a worthy line of investigation. If there's a recurring theme early on in the life of this podcast, it's to always go out of your way to distinguish between getting nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, winning the Pulitzer Prize, or not having anything at all to do with the Pulitzer Prize, because clearly, as we've learned from from your episode and another one, uh, that, that folks tend to hear the word Pulitzer and, and they don't care what other words you surround it with. They just jump to the end and assume that you've won the Pulitzer. They do. And it's interesting because <laughs> Vern Pizer, again, uh, is sort of the, the dark night of this podcast. He, he told me that he had nominated himself for a Pulitzer a couple of times. So after I heard that, I, I said, well, the Pulitzer is a huge award, but if you can nominate yourself, it's not that tough to get nominated. So, you know, I always judge the award uh, partially on that basis. Right. Uh, for many years, you partnered on stories in Arizona with this this individual, Randy Collier. Um, could you describe what made him such a good reporter and and for you such a good colleague to report with? Randy, you know, I'll use a lot of uh, words that sound insulting to describe Randy, but I had an enormous amount of respect for him. Randy Collier was a fat, alcoholic, chain-smoking, manic-depressive, suicidal guy from Oklahoma who was also very charming, and he was absolutely the best street reporter I've ever met. Uh, Randy, because he was insomniac, because he suffered a lot from uh, the ills caused by his weight, so he stayed up all night uh, contacting sources, and that put him way ahead of most reporters. Plus, his attitude was the best. He once told me that 
every he got up every morning with only thought one thought in mind, and that thought was, what kind of a great story to, can I get today for the Arizona Republic? That is a, a good attitude to take to any job. Uh, what what about him? He sounds like an unconventional journalist. Was his method of uh, gathering information for stories just as unconventional as as he was? It could be. Uh, Randy sometimes. <laughs> Randy liked to go to bars and sample the local gossip, and he wasn't above using a cover story when he did that. One time we took a trip out to western Arizona, and we were investigating a crooked uh, bail bondswoman, and we went to the local bar, and Randy introduced us to the bartender uh, as heavy equipment salesman for the mining industry. So we weren't uh, perceived as nosy reporters, and because we weren't, then we actually got a lot of good information about the people that we were uh, investigating. Uh, we we got to give me more on Randy. We just can't let this one die. Um, what was the most outlandish, you know, backstory he ever gave out? <laughs> I don't I don't know the well. I don't know if this is an outlandish backstory, but this was uh, this uh, this was a really good example of Randy's ability to dig out a story and to uh, follow through and deal with all the pressures involved. And that was the story of ASCAM. Uh, the ASCAM story involved a Phoenix police sting in which they brought in a bad guy to try to get uh, local legislators uh, local legislators to, uh, uh, to pass legislation that would approve gambling in Arizona. So you had all these, these politicians on camera, uh, wa- wanting to take bribes. This investigation had gone on for a long time. Randy got onto the story. They were trying to keep it all dark, but he got onto the story. And we published the story just before they were going to announce it. And of course, the, the cops and the pro- prosecutors are very upset. And they called Randy in and chewed on his butt because he was breaking the story, and they wanted to know his source, and and they were weren't going to let him out of the room till uh, they he did tell uh, who the source was. Well, he couldn't tell him who the source was because the source was sitting right there in the room with him. So I always considered that Randy's finest hour. And and correct me if I'm wrong. That was the story or one of the stories that earned the two of you the Verge Hill Award in 1992. It was yes, yes. Uh, um, oh, go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, we did. Uh, I think you mentioned that the other stories, there were a variety of other stories, but one of them was about uh, mortuaries mixing dog ashes with human ashes. And we found another missing heir. We found, we found out what happened to uh, the solution to a 20-year-old mystery about an aide to uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who had dis- disappeared mysteriously in the Houston airport. Uh, and we, you know, we, we got found out from his son finally what had happened because he had tracked him, tracked down his father and, uh, found out he had been on, on, well, the father said he had been on the run from the mafia all those years, which made a good story. Whether it was a true story, I'm not sure. I can't let you off the hook that easy about the mortuaries and the mixing of, 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 uh, 
of uh, bodies or if you have ashes, if you will. Let, right. you speak to that a little bit. Give me a little bit more there. I just, I can't let you off the hook that easy. <laughs> well, you know, it was mortuaries, you know, I mean, unfortunately, it's, it's one of those things where you know, the mortuaries, they just wanted to be more efficient. And they said, well, nobody's going to tell, going to be able to tell Aunt Jane's ashes from Snuffy the Pooch's ashes. So we'll just burn all these bodies together and hand them out to the uh, to our customers. And, you know, we figured out what they were doing. And, of course, uh, some of the customers were quite horrified at that practice. So in, I believe it was 2008, you retired from the Republic and you, uh, you're still living in the Phoenix area. Uh, but since then, you've spent time writing books. And I was wondering if you could discuss your work as a novelist um, and kind of compare and contrast how that sort of work um, relates to daily news reporting at the, that you did at the Republic. Yeah, I started out uh, working on novels. I'd written several novels and uh, you know, it took me a long time to have any success with that. I, uh, writing novels is different from newspaper writing. You really have to, to lengthen your rhythms and you have to have the interplay of character and conflict over a long piece of writing as opposed to doing a, a quick job, a quick breaking news story. So that was challenging. Uh, discuss the Grace Humiston book and, and how that came about and, and what you remember most about it. Grace Humiston uh, was a real person. I read a novel about her, but she actually existed. She, uh, she was, uh, I often call her uh, America's greatest forgotten female detective. Uh, she solved several murders in New York City around uh, the World War I era. Uh, and a, a remarkable person, very strong-minded and clever. And yeah, I, I, uh, there is a biography out on her now, not the greatest in the world, but uh, uh, she, she was uh, remarkable. Uh, I'm going to ask you in a moment about Dan Marlowe. But before I do, I want to read just the first few sentences of that book because I, I really, I think they're great. This is chapter one called No Way Back, and this is taken from Gunshots in Another Room, The Forgotten Life of Dan J. Marlowe. The headaches seemed to well up from the green hell enveloping him, pounding pain emerging from the sticky heat, pungent with sawgrass, moss, cypress, and brackish water. Paperback writer Dan Marlowe, master of the genre of flesh and gun, clutched his head and tried to think. He was 62 of average height, a rotund man who wore his thinning hair swept back. Usually, thinking was his strong suit, and his reputation was solid. He was highly respected in the writing community, had won an Edgar Award from the Mystery Writers of America, and was one of that organization's most active and popular members. His thrillers had sold hundreds of thousands of copies internationally. Uh, speak to Dan Marlowe a little bit. That this is a great book, and I think one of your triumphs in research. Give us the background on how you latched on to his story. I was always interested in. I, I'm always interested in what's called hard-boiled uh, literature. The really tough guy novels is is a short way of putting it. Uh, and Marlowe was to me sort of an undiscovered writer who I considered excellent. I'd always look for his books in old bookshops and so on. 
So after I wrote my first novel and I was trying to publish it, I was putting together, I wanted to put together an article on Marlowe. Uh, and not much was known about him. There was just a little on the internet about how he had lived in a little uh, place called Harbor Beach in upstate Michigan. So I started doing research, and I called Harbor Beach, and I, I ran down an insurance guy who said he had boxes and boxes of stuff on Marlowe. And I said, why do you have boxes of stuff on him? And he told me, because I was his guardian when he got amnesia. And forgot all about his past life and everything he had written. So that was the hook, and I was off and running at that point. And he also, I believe, had kind of a dark side to him, Marlo? Well, yeah, he did have a dark side to him. Marlo wrote uh, pornography on the side, but I must say that a lot of the mystery writers at that time did write pornography on the side. Uh, He also befriended a bank robber. And his friend told me he also had a spanking fetish. So it doesn't make him a bad guy, but it did make him more interesting. We all have our vices, don't we? <laughs> yeah. uh, beyond Marlowe, um, who are some of your other favorite writers? Oh, I really like uh, Charles Bukowski, uh, George Orwell. Uh, I, I liked uh, William Burroughs, some of his more straightforward novels like Junkie. Uh, I my favorite novel is probably uh, uh, the Bridge of San Luis Rey by Thornton Wilder because it has a great newspaper lead on it. Do you recall the lead? Yeah, the lead is. Let me. I'll, I'll just read it for you here. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It uh, on Friday noon, uh, June the twentieth, seventeen fourteen, the finest bridge in all Peru broke and precipitated five travelers into the gulf below. That's that's quite an economy (laughs) of words. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of leads, do you have, in all the years of reporting, is there one particular lead of yours that stands out as exceptional in your mind? Well, I I did write a lead about a a bank robber that was captured in Mexico, and I always always liked the, the way that lead came together. Uh, I hate I hate to put you on the spot. Do you have it nearby where you could uh, read it for us? I do. Yes, let me let me do that. Uh, the, the lead went like this: Rudy Romero ran for a long time all over Mexico. He had a good chance. The drug cartels protected him, and the murder in his memory had taken place many years before in another country. But it had been the murder of a police officer. And for that kind of killing, you know, the hunting will never stop. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, looking back on your time with the Arizona Republic, what do you what do you miss the most about uh, going into work there every day? Oh, certainly the people. The uh, people in journalism and newspapers are just the most fun, fascinating, knowledgeable people in the world. So, you know, definitely I miss the people. Do current Republic reporters ever contact you either for files or notes or to help assist like their tribal memory to cover a current story? Sometimes, but mostly in in connection with the Don Bowles murder, whenever there's a significant significant anniversary connected with the case, that's when they call me in. And, And then as it pertains to Phoenix, the city itself, um, 
how has it evolved in the last, say, 45 years that you've been living there? Is, is kind of crime and fraud still inherent in the city's culture? The, the city administration is, you know, it's a bigger city. It's a more varied city. Uh, you know, the, generally speaking, the police and the administration, generally speaking, I think are doing an efficient, honest job. But there's so much population churn that this is still a magnet for grifters. And believe me, you, st- you still see people committing frauds and, and slick actions uh, in Phoenix and the Maricopa County area. Uh, back for a second, just to the practice of, of journalism. What do you think are the most important skills for a daily journalist to master? You you had quite an education coming up as an MP. We discussed that earlier and then moving into reporting. But what are some of the most essential skills that a person needs to do that job effectively? You really need to think fast and to write fast. Uh, and writing quickly is a skill. You really have to train your brain to do it, uh, and it takes some time to do it. Uh, it's even more important now because reporters have to grab everything that they report on and throw it right up on the Internet, so they don't have a lot of time to mess around. So those are the skills that I think are prime. During your time at the Republic, how did the, how did the practice of journalism change, and how did the standards to which reporters were held. How did those standards evolve? One of the one of the more interesting, though, maybe a minor point to uh, to some listeners would be the way attribution was handled. Uh, back when I started, you had to attribute facts to a source uh, every time. You always said police said and uh, this, and police said that. Uh, then over time, uh, reporters were allowed to write more on their own authority. If they'd gathered the information, they could write without throwing in the sources. Then uh, we went through a period where everyone wanted uh, to attribute uh, information uh, again, and so we did that. And then when we had a, a columnist on the Republic who actually was making up sources and making up people, then whenever we went out on a story, even a casual story, like going to a baseball game, if you quoted someone, you had to get their contact information to make sure that you weren't making them up. So that was a pain, definitely. You, you know, you just hit on uh, something about, uh, you know, verifying source material. Back to your your colleague, Vern Pizer, who, who showed up at the Republic. Um, whatever came of his career? Oh, Pizer, uh, he was fired when they uh, finally uncovered the fact he was writing the stories for the waitress. And uh, he was actually fired right around the time that Tully was fired. And, you know, they both started to work for little newspapers. They were both skilled news people, uh, even though they'd been disgraced. And Tully wound up as publisher of a little uh, newspaper in Ojai, California at one point, and he hired Pizer. And Pizer would would sometimes tell me after that that Tully would go out in the newsroom and start telling these war stories about all the combat he'd been and and Pizer would have to take him aside and say, "You know, Duke, those things really didn't happen. <laughs> those two were kind of a match made for each other ultimately yeah they, yeah, they were both ends of the spectrum. they were interesting people. 
Well, Charles, listen, this has been just excellent. Um, and for the interest of full disclosure, our listeners should know that uh, you and I have been friends for probably a decade or more, and, you, and you've been a, a great uh, of great assistance to me in my own writing. I've worked on a couple books where you've been just a wonderful resource for myself as a young writer, and I can't ever thank you enough for all that. Um, and I'll do you one more. Um, all my my college professors would probably appreciate now that the interview is winding down, if I asked you one final question, and the question is, do you have anything else to add? Yeah, I, I would just like to say that I had a lot of fun uh, working in newspapers. H.L. Mencken sort of captured uh, <clears throat> that at, at one point. Who, he said that he had had more fun in uh, as a newspaper reporter than in any other enterprise in his life. And he said, it really is the life of kings. That That's a great line. And I think uh, certainly your career would, would vouch for that statement. It sounds like uh, you really think fondly of all those years at the Republic. I definitely do. And of all the people I worked with. Well, Charles, listen, thanks. This has been wonderful. Uh, you're, uh, I have a hard time calling you a washed up anything because you're still <laughs> writing every day. But but uh, you're now one of the on-the-wall stars of the washed-up journalists. So thank you for being with me today. And uh, again, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, John. It was a lot of fun.